Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. My name is Mason. Uh, sorry about getting the episode up a little late. We had a lot going on this weekend. First of all, uh, Father's Day. I'm a father of two, if you don't know, and they're little. First Father's Day with two kids, which is awesome. Um, it was my birthday on the 20th, so that was another thing we were celebrating. And also, it's a holiday on the 20th because of Juneteenth, so a lot of us were celebrating something this weekend, and for me, it was you know tripling up, honestly. But anyway, let's go ahead and jump into this story. Elise's uh, adventure starts when her life in the in London, in the city of London, was not going how she planned, and she decided to do something to mix it up, take 10 months off, quit her job, essentially, to literally run a lap around the UK. She stayed along the coast, did this solo, had a backpack, and ran 5,000 miles around the UK unbelievable adventure. I mean, this is a classic, epic, solo adventure sports podcast story. And Elise wrote an incredible book that ended up becoming a Times bestseller of 2021 uh, called Coasting. It's very different and very raw, very just open and honest and funny uh, just about her experience out there. I encourage you to check it out. Just talking about the highs and lows of the experience and, and how she did it, how she just had the basically the guts to get out there and do it. So comes from a very cool, adventurous family. Uh, but, you know, sometimes we need to discover that on our own for it to be real to us. So I encourage you to check out her book. Find it anywhere uh, you get books. But, uh, you know, there's some links in the show notes of where you can find it. Yeah, let's go ahead and jump in and welcome to the show again. Happy you're here. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today we have um, a really interesting story that has a, a book that accompanies it that you probably heard in the intro, um, but I want to welcome to the show Elise Downing. Welcome. Hey, Mason. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So, so where are you coming from today, and is that home? Um, I'm coming from Bristol. I'm sitting in my flat, which is currently home, although I'm actually moving in a couple of weeks, so be probably the last thing I record from my living room. <laughs> Oh really? Last thing you record. So a good thing. Are you excited for the for the move? Yeah, I've actually um, I've just bought a van and planning to spend the summer being a bit more nomadic, I guess. So um, yeah, last putting my stuff into storage and saying goodbye to my flat for a bit. Uh, so yeah, quite exciting. <laughs> is van life like? Is it really taking off in the UK? Because here in the states, it's huge. You know, it's just yeah. there's so much land. Um, how about there? Yeah, I think it does seem to have. And I'm not really going to be doing completely full-time van life. I always wanted, also wanted to spend a bit more time back home with my family for various reasons. So I'm going to be doing a bit of a mixture of both. But um, yeah, it just seemed like a good compromise between still having like, I guess, a bit of a home, some space, and not being tied to, well, my flat and paying rent and stuff like that. So excited. To, definitely don't see it being like a super long-term thing, but excited to spend yeah a few months exploring really after so I think I imagine like a lot of people with all the pandemic stuff over the past couple of years there's been a lot of being in one place so definitely feeling a bit of an itch after that oh yeah absolutely well you you're someone who's seen quite a bit of uh your own country <laughs> um so no, I've, I've seen a, a, obviously the whole coastline of the country yes. but my inland knowledge is appalling to be honest so I'm kind of excited to get to know some other areas a bit because yeah I can tell you about places on the coast but take me inland and I'm useless <laughs> so all right so growing up you mentioned your family where is your family based and, and is that where you grew up as well 
Yes, my family are based in Northampton, which is kind of in the middle of the Midlands, really. So pretty much as far as from the sea as you can actually get in the UK, although far from the sea in the UK isn't really that far. I think everyone lives within like a two hour drive of the sea in England, which I know is very different to in the States. Um, but yeah, so I grew up there, yeah, in the middle of the Midlands, just in a pretty, pretty normal town, to be honest. There's not really much. Not really much going on in Northampton, no big mountains or coast or anything like that. I uh, born and raised in Florida, so I kind of know what it's like to be coast, close to the coast at all times, yeah. but still into having, yeah, no mountains at all. So um, <laughs> definitely similar in that way. So, um, gosh, so, so you're going to be visiting family, you're going to be doing van life, but t- tell us about like, what was it like growing up in your family? Were you an adventurous family? Was this a thing or was this something you kind of discovered on your own? So I think yes and no. Like, so my dad basically kind of, he, he my dad always says that he had read that you could walk up mountains. It wasn't something he'd ever done. Like my, his kind of growing upbringing definitely wasn't particularly outdoorsy. Um, he'd kind of heard this mystical thing about hill walking. And I think when I was quite young, when I was kind of four or five, he bought a trail magazine, found a route in the Peak District, um, which is about, yeah, about an hour and a half drive from where we lived. And he just one Saturday took himself up to walk up a hill and he was like, well, this is great, isn't it? So then because he used to have to look after me a lot when my mum was working, he would drag me off up these mountains um and to be honest I hated every single second of it I think like a lot of kids I guess I just moaned the whole way I didn't want to be there and then especially when I kind of became a teenager I definitely didn't want to go up mountains with my dad um and I wasn't sporty at all as a kid like my brother did cross country and athletics at school and I just I didn't do any sport as a kid so I always think, yeah, I always say like I wasn't a sporty kid and I didn't do much stuff when I was younger. But then I guess just being dragged on these walks with my dad, even if I didn't think I enjoyed them at the time, I guess it makes you realise that people do those things. Whereas then I talked to friends who didn't do any of that when they were younger and you say, oh, I'm just going to pop up a mountain now. And it seemed they're just like, what? That's mad. So I guess, yeah, yes and no. I definitely did some stuff, but I wouldn't say I enjoyed it. And I wanted to be inside watching TV. I didn't want to be outside of a mountain. Isn't it neat? Good for parents to force us to do that stuff because uh, I was the same way. My dad would take me, we call it hiking here, but I love that, you know, you climb an entire mountain in the UK and you went for a walk. You know what I mean? That's really what it is. (laughs) We we make it sound a lot more crazy than it is. (laughs) Yeah, although our mountains are in general, I guess, a bit smaller than a lot of the ones you guys have. Yeah, but Um, still, you go for a walk here. If it's not on pavement, you call it a hike. And even if it's flat and even if it's like a quarter mile, you're like, oh, I went for a hike. No, you went for a walk. Um. (laughs) Yeah, interesting distinction. I remember I kept, just for consistency, I kept recording everything on Strava as a hike. And sometimes that would be like a two-mile walk around the harbour on pavement where I live. And I was like, it's not really a hike, is it? (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, but yeah, good for parents for taking us. Those seeds that they plant. So, you know, when we're so reluctant to do that or so apprehensive about going out there with them, that does come back because my dad did the same thing, took me. I absolutely hated it. It was hard work. It was you're breathing heavy. Um, You're like, what is the point of this? But now it's one of my favorite things to do. And I I don't know if they foresee that or if they're enjoying it then like we are now, you know what I'm saying? And knowing we're going to 
like it later? I don't know, but it, it, it's an interesting thought. I think my dad just finds it hilarious now that this is the thing I choose to do with my spare time. And now I do. I do loads of like walking and trail running and stuff with my dad. And I think every time I suggest we go camping for the weekend, yeah, he just finds it funny. And he's like, you weren't saying this 25 years ago. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think, yeah, just, yeah, I guess it just makes you feel like it's possible. Although sometimes, uh, and also because this was kind of the mid 90s kit was a lot less advanced than it is now. And like, we didn't have loads of money when I was growing up. We're just generally going up these hills, like probably in not the best equipment. And Sometimes now we redo walks we did when I was younger and they're really hard. And I'm like, I can see why I moaned when I was six about this because I'm finding it quite hard now in a lot better kit, like having had like chosen to do it. So I have a bit of sympathy for my six-year-old self. Walking up hills is hard. It's very hard. Camping. I just took my three-year-old camping and he hated it. Absolutely. Like we couldn't even sleep in the middle. He would not go to sleep. He kept just freaking out. And well, he was two and a half at the time. So mm-hmm. give him a little credit, but we had to leave in the middle of the night and drive two hours back home, like at one in the oh, morning yeah. after not sleeping. And I thought, Hey, we got time. Cause I, I'm not worried that about it at all because, uh, there's plenty of time, plenty of time to get them used to it. But even if he doesn't like it this age, eventually, but, um, all right. So yeah, hopefully in 30 years, you'll be sitting here having this conversation <laughs> with him. Yeah, in 30 years, I'll be 60, he'll be 30, and uh, I, I probably won't want to sleep on the ground at that point, but we'll see. <laughs> well, <laughs> My dad still wants to, so... Oh, just perfect. Fine. Yeah, I, I'll just need a better sleeping pad. Right now, I just use... Yeah. I'll, I'll just lay on the ground, no problem. But um, so, so you grow up, you, you know, you're doing that stuff. I know you come from an athletic family, or at least a running family. I know a lot of running, but not um, necessarily uh, doing this kind of thing where did the, where, where did it start to turn for you? I know that you had an experience, this is in the book about, uh, living in London, kind of pursuing that, that life that, uh, here in the States, you know, climbing the corporate ladder maybe, or just pursuing that, that city life. And, uh, it wasn't working for you. Tell us about that and what gave you the confidence to, to do something about it. Yeah, so I think in terms of kind of like getting into running and stuff, I it was when I was at university, I um, I started running mainly because I wanted to get a bit fitter. I was a poor student and couldn't afford a gym membership. So I was like, right, I'll go running. And it also, it did seem like people who liked running really liked running. Yeah, they're insane. Yeah, I was like, it seems like a cool thing to do. I'd like to be one of those people. And, um, and I remember like, uh, this was probably like, yeah, 10 years ago now, kind of like 2012, yeah, about 2012. And like blogging was huge at the time. And I, and I kept like reading these blogs of people who were running just sort of marathons casually on a weekend. And it just blew my mind that that was something people could do. Um, but there was a little part of me that was like, that would be so cool to be that person that just goes out for like a four hour run. Um, so I started running. I had the first time I went out, I couldn't run for five minutes. Um, like, yeah, I just was so unfit. But I kind of kept plugging away a little bit. And eventually, after like a month or so, I think I could run for half an hour, which I didn't have a running watch or anything at the time, but I worked out must be about 5K. And I think it was just, I always say, it was like the idea that something completely impossible a month ago was now something I could do. And there was just something about that that I really liked, like that like power over what was possible, I guess. And it just felt like a kind of magic, to be honest. So I... I carried on running a bit, but I think my like 
ambitions for it always really outweighed how much training I was willing to do and I never really got into the like the habit of it really being kind of day-to-day part of my life and I did I did a half marathon I did a pretty disastrous marathon and I like I liked running but I definitely wasn't wasn't very good at it wasn't very committed to it but I think I was liked the idea of being better at it than I was um and then yeah I finished university and I moved to London and got a graduate job working at a startup and I think I just thought like that's just what you do isn't it like you go to university you get a job you I I hoped that I would like my job a bit I wasn't willing to do something I hated and I I did I was working for like a healthy food startup doing something I found really interesting but there was just something about the thought of kind of sitting at that desk forever and it it feels like a bit of a, a bit of a cliche to talk about and also I'm also very aware whenever I talk about this that I was so privileged and lucky to be in a position where I could even think about giving up my job and going running for a year um but yeah I just I was just so miserable those first few months in London and I I was at the time like I said I was reading a lot of blogs and following people online and it was people like Anna McNuff and Al Humphreys who I know you've said you had I've had on the podcast and they were living these just really adventurous lives and I was like well if they can do that perhaps I could do that um and I started I didn't have like tons of friends in London at the time because I'd only just moved there um and so I, I found this thing called the Yes Tribe which had been started by Dave Cornthwaite and it he basically he was an adventurer as well and he one summer decided to stay in London this was in 2015 and put basically try and build a bit of a community out of the people who followed him online. So he arranged this Friday night camp out and he said, just come to this train station, meet up and we'll go camping for the night. So off I went with my backpack, like a really old, my dad's old like bivy bag he got from an army surplus store, one of those huge foam roll mats, all very low tech kit. And I was, remember being on the train, like, I'm going to get murdered tonight. This is the start of a horror film. <laughs> I'm camping with complete strangers that I've met on the internet. But I got to the train station and everyone seemed very nice and normal, not like serial killers. And we went and camped in the woods that night. And it was, it was actually just before that that I'd had this idea of running around the country, which I'm sure we'll kind of come back to. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I remember we stood around the fire and Dave said, everyone like say something, I don't know, something you've got coming up, a challenge or whatever. And I think that was the first time I'd kind of voiced this idea. And I was like, oh, I really want to run around the coast of the UK. And nobody said, I just expected to kind of get heckled. And like, I was like, they all tell me it was absolutely ridiculous. But this group of people, some of them are still some of my best friends, were like, no, that's amazing. Go and do it. And Oh, yeah, they obviously didn't know me at all. They didn't know what a terrible runner I was. But it was that kind of vote of confidence, I think, that re- and meeting those like-minded people that really gave me a bit of a push to quite, to think about the options, to, yeah, I guess have a life that wasn't just living in a capital city and working at a desk for the rest of my life. Do you remember what some of the other answers were around the campfire? So, oh, so Sean Conway was around the campfire. Oh, he's... Uh... He's one of I will work with him. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he he had what had he just done? Oh, oh he's done a lot. <laughs> yeah, he just done his swim the length of Britain, I think. Yeah. And I remember him talking about his upcoming challenge, and there and there was a, a guy there who was only he was only about seventeen, really, sixteen or seventeen, and he he'd got a challenge coming up to wild camp every month in the year. There were various things. Um, 
And yeah, it was just people just saying these things like, with, and no, yeah, without, I think sometimes you can say you've got an idea. And I think my friends and family, they don't even, and they, they're actually like super supportive and amazing. But sometimes you just can see that slight like eye roll. And it was really nice that there were no eye rolls around this circle. It was just like, yeah, go and do it. Wow. Yeah, that's, um, some people thrive off that, uh, that eye roll in the sense of wanting to do something different, but you were surrounded. Yeah. Sean Conway is, um, huge in that world as well. I was so starstruck because I'd been following Dave for ages yeah. and, like, and, I, and there was Dave, there was Sean. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, like these are celebrities basically. <laughs> Not just camping with them and like yeah. sharing beer on a Friday night. And the fact that they were so, they'd all done these. Yeah. Like, Sean and Dave have both done so many huge adventures. And the fact they were so encouraging was amazing. And I've definitely found that a bit that people who have done a lot of these things are so supportive and are like, yeah, go and do it. And I think a big part of that is because when you talk to them, you realize that nobody had a clue what they were doing when they first started doing this stuff. Whereas it's the people who haven't done the things that always have a bit more naysayery and are like, that seems like a terrible idea. You don't meet a baby that knows how to do anything. You know, yeah. so it, it does take just exploring and you realize for a lot of these things, there's a very quick learning curve and you kind of have it down pat in the sense of the, but you can learn 80% of this sport or 80% of this challenge in a matter of weeks. And it's just kind of repeating that to refine the rest. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I think something I always think is really interesting is I actually listen to, I don't know if you're familiar with the Real Talk radio podcast that let Nicole Antoinette uh, hosted. She had used to have a lot of adventure uh, mm-hmm. guests on. And she was talking to a guest, a woman, and it was actually about that they, they're a recovering alcoholic and it was about their sobriety journey. But they said this thing about how you don't need to know what you're doing on day one to get to year 10. And I thought that was really interesting because I think it's really easy to look at like a big project or challenge or whatever it is in its entirety and be like well I don't know how to do that so I'm never going to be able to do it it's like on day one you just have to be able to do day one of the thing and then you can figure the rest out as you go like you're never going to know how to do the whole thing on day one wow no that's absolutely true one day at a time one day at a time that's something my mom always tells me but uh I hate to keep bringing this you know plug-in stuff but um I work with Sean specifically. You just mentioned not drinking, but a non-alcoholic brewery, Athletic Brewing, if you've ever heard of that. Sean yeah. is one of our athletes. Oh, I have heard of, of Athletic Brewing, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, so that's my day job. And then I do this show on the side. And how I started I working there, funny enough, was the uh, owner of the brewery was a big fan of the podcast. Uh, okay. And so we started working together and now now I'm full time. But anyway, we, we've grown a lot in the UK. And uh, yeah, I'll have to send you some after our conversation if you'd like. Oh my God, yeah, I'd love that. I've, I've drink quite a lot of the Lucky Saint and Days non-alcoholic beers are quite big in the UK. So yep, yep, absolutely. I'd be, um, I, we can mail it right to your doors. So that'd be great. So yeah, we'll connect on that I'm after the call. You. But um, I know all my listeners are probably like, oh, here we go again. I definitely listened to a podcast interview with the founder of Athletic Growing. Yeah, no oh, kidding. Yeah. Bill yeah. Schufelt, great person, great, big fan of the show too. I don't know if he listens anymore. He's so busy, but, um, no, it's pretty cool. It all is, it's all very much connected, but, uh, anyway, um, I think Alistair's had some and a lot of the people I have on the show, I'll send, I'll send beer to, but that is so cool. So that yes tribe really, really kind of gave you the confidence. And it wasn't like everyone was saying, you know, oh, I want to, you know, 
grow a plant or something, you know, that even though that's a wonderful thing and I do that myself, you had a really big goal, but it wasn't lost on this crowd and it was encouraged. And so when would you say the idea came to you? Because you said you had the idea before then, where did this idea come from? Because all of us have that story of where this was the inspiration to do this thing. Because when you, I mean, there's a million things you could do for 10 months. Why this? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor, Gnarly Nutrition. I know you've heard about them recently because we've had some guests on recently that credits Gnarly for helping them do the the adventures that we talk about on this show. So uh, Chris Fisher was one who did the Vert Max. He did 400,000 feet of elevation gain in a month. Check out that episode. Uh, that was not too far back. And he credits Gnarly Nutrition for keeping him his body literally sustained during that time, just packing in the calories. It's amazing nutrition for anyone doing anything adventure, uh, endurance-based, whether that's in the mountains or bikepacking or whatever. It's a great thing to have with you prior to an, uh, an adventure training and also during an adventure. And also Jason Hardrath, who recently did um, the 100 Fastest Known Times. He did 100 mountains in 50 days and just was slamming gnarly nutrition. He also credits Gnarly for essentially keeping his body sustained. And so um, Gnarly Nutrition has been around since 2008. They were born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, uh, and they are committed to educating and inspiring athletes of all levels to be as nutritionally sound as possible. Their nutrition supplements are certified by NSF and have science-backed products free of hormones, free of GMOs, proprietary blends, uh, and nothing artificial. So Gnarly is going to help you get ready and help you sustain during uh, those huge adventure efforts. So if you're looking for the best tasting and the most trusted sports nutrition brand for any endurance athletes, go to GoGnarly, and that is G-N-A-R-L-Y dot com, and use the code GnarlyAdventure15 for 15% off. And just, you know, a personal plug here, I love Gnarly. I love the folks there. They're doing such a fantastic job. They have been so great to work with. Uh, they helped provide some products for um, our Journey to 100 film series uh, that we were doing giveaways with at the end of every film screening. So it's been a pleasure to work with them so far. So if you'd like to support the folks that are supporting this show, definitely go visit gonarly.com. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. So I, I remember the, when the moment, when the idea came to me so clearly. I was sitting at work. Um, I used to work a few evening shifts um, at my job. And yeah, I was looking at the map of Great Britain to see if we could deliver something to a customer who lived in the Scottish Highlands. And I just, like, this idea popped into my mind. I just remember thinking, oh, I wonder if anyone's been around the whole coast of the UK before. Like, that would be a cool thing to do. And I didn't necessarily mean running. I just thought, oh, I wonder if anyone's cycled or walked or sailed or whatever it was. And I, I kind of sat there and Googled this while I was still sitting at work. And Oh, you're playing a dangerous and, game. Yeah, sorry to my boss. Um, it was very quiet in the evening, so there was a lot of time to Google random things. And... I found out that quite a few people have walked around the coast of Britain and that people have some amazing websites and stuff where they logged that. Quite a lot of people have cycled um, and stuff. And it, I just remember thinking that would be so, such a cool thing to do. Um, and it seemed at the time like no one had really ran it before. Um, 
And I honestly don't know why I thought, oh, I could do that. But I just kind of thought, oh, maybe, maybe that's something I could do. And I think part of that was down to like reading and following all these people like 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 Adam Enough and stuff who just made these things although they're like they've done these huge achievements did make them seem really accessible in a way that kind of feels quite unique to like adventure sport in some ways that the people the people who have done these things do kind of make it seem sometimes like anyone could do it <laughs> um which is not true but um well it is no it definitely is true but obviously it kind of downplayed what amazing athletes they are um because now I've like found out more about these people I know that for instance Adam Enough was like an incredible ex-GB rower the daughter of two Olympians and I absolutely was not as we've already discussed <laughs> but it gave me kind of the confidence to think oh maybe I could do that they just seem like ordinary lovely people um so yeah and I kept, I kept thinking about it and at the time I was dating someone who was quite in, into adventure stuff and I remember talking to him about things as well, kind of made me think, oh, I could do these things. And I think he was the first person I actually told about this idea as well. And again, he was just like, yeah, do it. Like, that's that seems like a good idea. Um, so, yeah, kind of grew from there, really. And I think, in a way, it seemed like a bit of a get-out-of-jail card in terms of I was absolutely miserable. Um, and... But I felt like I can't quit my job after six months of my full-time working life. And whereas going and doing this big challenge almost seemed like a reasonable excuse to ditch everything I didn't like in my life, basically. Not sure if that's good logic or not, but uh, yeah. It always starts with a map. That's what I <laughs> realize. It always starts whether it's on your wall or Google Maps. You're just, you start exploring and you, and you have to see what you're seeing on the map in person. Yeah. That's so funny. Like, and it's funny because at the time I was terrible at map reading. I didn't have a clue how you'd plan a big adventure. So I basically did absolutely no planning. But now, even if I'm only going for like 5K run, like plotting the route beforehand is my favorite part of it. Like I love oh, sitting yeah. and looking at a map. <laughs> it's so crazy too because you, 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 your brain starts to want to visualize what you think you're going to see. And mm. then actually being there is so different. Yeah. And that's part of the beauty is like you, you create this mental picture of what you're going to view on this path or on this route. And in reality, it's always just so, so, so different. And it's just not, I mean, that's why, that's why doing adventures is so important. It's so amazing in perspective shifting. So you get the plan, you've been working, you, you get this idea uh, you, you estimate, I guess, at the time it's going to take you 10 months. Maybe you didn't know that before, but I've heard a lot of people that are supporting of you right now, but what was there anybody that thought this was a bad idea? Nobody exactly said to me, I think this is a bad idea, but I think there was definitely a bit of a division between all the people, like I said, like the people from the Yash tribe and the, the, the adventure community as a whole, I guess, who were like, yeah, go and do it. You can do it. And then all of my actual friends and family who knew me really well, and rightfully, I guess, given that they knew how undedicated I was to my running career, the fact I'd never really done any adventures before, they they were they didn't say this is a bad idea, but they were definitely. I think they mainly just thought that I couldn't do it. Like one of my best friends said to me about two weeks before I finished, like we are all quite surprised you got this far. And to be honest, I think that's quite fairly reasonable given my lack of any kind of experience. And also, I think people maybe just thought that I'd, I'd say, and I think it is, and I definitely use a lot, it's easy to kind of say these big ideas and the, the amount of time you go through with them is a lot less. Like I've 
I had quite a lot of emails in the last five years from people saying, I'm going to run around the coast of the UK and asking for advice. And of those people who've emailed me, I I don't I know of hardly any have actually sat out and done it. So I think everybody just thought, oh, I'm just saying I'm going to do this. I'm not actually going to do it. And I think the only thing that actually made me get to the start line was that kind of desperation of wanting to do something. But yeah, I can understand why they were all a bit sceptical, I've got to say. What was the scariest moment with committing to this? Was it telling your boss? Was it telling your parents? Or was it ending your lease? Tell us about that. I think it was mainly like the, the almost like the pride side of it. Because I think at the time, and I always say this, I was, I was 23, I'd just finished university. And although my friends weren't exactly doing the same things, a lot of my friends were kind of got, had gone traveling after university or they were doing ski seasons or, or two of my best friends had gone cycling around Central America. And or people like might have still not found a, a good job after university and were kind of like temping and whatever. And so I feel like every, a lot of my kind of peers were in that quite transient stage, I guess. So the idea of kind of abandoning my whole life for a year just didn't feel as scary as it kind of does now, really. Like now, like being a bit older and giving up like work and jobs and leases feels like a much bigger deal. And at the time, that side of things didn't feel that scary to me. Um, and I guess I previously had yeah, been in that cycle of sort of studying and being at university for nine months and sometimes going to do something over the summer and being in lots of different places and not having like roots in that way. Um, and although, yeah, it was definitely the main thing that was a bit scary about telling my boss was I'd been at that job for about six months and I wasn't planning to leave for another six or seven months. But I kind of had to tell her I was going to do this thing because we were, we'd become friends and I, I think we were friends on Facebook and I knew I'd be like posting about it and I'd set up a blog and stuff. And I was like, I can't keep it a secret. But it is a bit weird six months into a job giving your notice in six months in advance. But luckily they were <laughs> super, super supportive. Because um, I remember some friends being like, I don't think you should tell work. But luckily, my, like my work were great and I just kind of knew they'd be fine with it. But yeah, I guess that was a bit odd. Uh, but I think the scariest thing was more that once I'd started to tell people, and especially people I didn't know, and I'd kind of, yeah, I'd set up a, set up a bit of a blog and started to, a few people had followed along with it. And I was like, I've got to do this now because I'm too embarrassed to say, oh, it was all a bad idea and I can't do it. So yeah, it was kind of, the. I think my pride is the only thing that really kept stuck to, kept me stuck to it. Because otherwise I think I would have been like, there were definitely moments in the build-up, especially as we got a bit closer. Because I think when I first started telling people, it was all just quite exciting talking about it. And then we got a bit closer and I was like, oh no, I've actually got to go and do this thing. The day, the night before any adventure I start, I almost have a panic attack. For anyone out there thinking, oh, you got to be so excited and confident and feeling great up until the day you start, you are, I personally, I can't speak for you. I second guess myself. I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Um, but you have to push through that. What was your experience? Yeah, definitely. I, I think that even about, like, I think it's the same when you like start a new job or move house or like even just like going on holiday sometimes. That moment right before you do it or even when you've just started doing anything, it all feels so hard and horrible. And I'm like, I wish I just stuck at the old thing. Like, I wish I wasn't, yeah, I wish I just stuck at that old thing that was really safe and I knew what I was doing. And there's definitely that moment of being like, oh, like, why, what, like, it's all so much effort. Like, why have I done this? Um, so I can, yeah, definitely agree with that. I think with the run, it was, 
about two two weeks before I set off, I was when I finished my job and I moved all my stuff home from where I was living in London back to my parents. And I remember my mum saying that she much preferred it when I was still away and she couldn't see how disorganised I was about the whole thing. She said she just <laughs> horror when I got home and she was like, so how's the planning going? And I was like, wow, I haven't really done any. Um, and then, yeah, definitely in those two weeks before, I was just filled with like, what on earth have I signed up for? And I was like, I can't back out now. And yeah, I was... I think I cried every day for those two weeks. I was like, what on earth am I doing? So yeah, I definitely agree with that. So I, I know you didn't prepare much in the sense of like training and whatnot. You kind of trained on the job, as I heard you say somewhere else. Um, what what was it like starting? I, I know we this whole time we've been talking about before the adventure, and that's a little bit intentional because I feel like you get asked a lot about the experience itself, but I want to know, there's so many people that were that are in your shoes that listen to the show. I hear more and more from folks saying, "Oh, this is my escape from work. I'm I'm planning my own big thing in a year or two, which is going to take totally upending my life." So I think that applies a lot more to people right now than the experience itself. But tell us about what it was like starting. Where did you start? And you, the plan was to run around the coast of Britain as close to the coast as possible, trails, roads. Tell us what you knew going into it as far as like what you were going to do and then what it was like to start. Yeah, I think just to go back to quickly to what you just said, I definitely I think the kind of getting to the start line bit is definitely the hardest bit. And I, I always say that like I, I genuinely believe that if, if I can run around a country kind of physically, then pretty much anyone can. And you don't need to be like the fastest, best person to go and do these big things. You just have to go and actually do them. But it's the getting to the start line that, I mean, yeah, it's definitely the hardest bit. Uh, so I think, yeah, definitely relevant to talk about all of that. Um, but So I started on November the 1st, which, so right at the start of winter, which probably seems like a strange choice. It was mainly just because it worked out timings-wise from when I decided to do it. And I thought I could just about save up enough money in that time. As it turned out, I completely underestimated how much it would cost. But, um, and it... Yeah, it just kind of worked out that way. And actually, I think in hindsight, it was quite good because it meant, although the beginning was really hard for the first kind of four or five months when it was winter, it ended up just getting better and better. And I think if I'd started at a different time of year and had to go into winter, it would have been quite difficult mentally. So I'm glad I started on November the 1st, even if I didn't think that when my feet were wet for the first four months of the whole thing. Um, but yeah, so I started, I started in London, um, basically, although London's obviously not strictly on the coast of the UK, it is quite far to the east. And if you, you have to come quite far into the Thames, which is the river that runs through London, um, to cross it anyway, because it's a huge estuary. So if I hadn't started in London, I would have had to almost come in to cross the river anyway. And as that was where I was living and I was familiar with, I was like, oh, that seems like a good place to start. And it only added about 30 miles or so on, which in the grand scheme of things didn't feel like much. Um, and yeah, my plan basically was, it was kind of hard to work out how much distance it was because I think Wikipedia says something like the length of the UK coast is anywhere between three and 11,000 miles, which is obviously quite a big oh difference. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> Not helpful. But it seemed like most people who'd walked the route, um, which would obviously be almost the same as I was doing, was had done about 5,000 miles, depending on if they'd done islands and stuff. So that seemed like a pretty safe bet for mileage. And for timings, I, basically, I'd 
I went onto Anna McLuff's website. I, I'd emailed Anna basically saying, because she was running the length of New Zealand at the time, saying, I've had this idea. I've never done anything like this before. Do you have any advice? And she was amazing. Like she emailed me back quicker from the New Zealand bush than I can email people back from my home. Um, basically being like, yeah, go and do it. Let's have a Skype. And she seemed to be averaging about 17 miles a day. And basically because I had nothing better to go on. I was like, well, I'll average 17 miles a day as well then. Um, and that worked out to about 10 months. So I hoped that's how long it would take me, although I wasn't really sure. Um, and the idea was always to go clockwise around the UK so that I'd be south for the winter and north for the summer. So I'd get kind of slightly better weather up in Scotland um, where it was a bit more remote and conditions can be a bit harsher. Um, and that, yeah, kind of off I went really. And I just remember that. And, and the plan, what I realised quite quickly actually was, Often when you hear about people doing challenges like this, and especially if people are doing kind of real, really going for actual Guinness World Records and whatever, you do have to, or fastest known times or whatever it might be, they're really strict about their route and where they start and finish each day and stuff like that. And I quickly realised that that didn't really matter to me at all. Um, so in terms of the route, my plan was basically to stick as much to the coast as I could but there are some sections where the most coastal route is a really busy road with no footpath. And if that was the case, then I wasn't willing to put myself in danger and have an absolutely terrible time just for the sake of being near the coast. So then I'd happily take a slightly more inland route that was safer and more pleasant. Um, and I ended up doing a bit of island hopping up in Scotland. So I quite quickly found that my approach to the whole thing was quite relaxed, um, which, yeah, I, I was kind of fine with, to be honest. Um, so yeah, I set off on November the 1st. The first day I ran from London to Dartford in Kent. Um, and it was just basically along the side of a road. We did a bit of the river path. It was 17 miles. And it was probably the most unglamorous start you could have to an adventure, to be honest. I feel like you see all these pictures of amazing people in these incredible places. And uh, yeah, I was just in a pretty dreary town in Kent thinking, is this really what I signed up for? So yeah, that was the that was the beginning of it. <laughs> Gosh, there's so much there that I, I would love to touch on, um, but it <laughs> it's not glamorous. It's it's you know we we hear from I've heard from enough adventures and done enough on my end to know that the beginning and the end can feel very anticlimactic, climactic, climactic, whatever it is. It's amazing, and and you can't you can't know that until you go out and do it. So the first day you said was not great but what what was your how were your spirits that first day or first two days those are always the hardest for me in the sense of like accepting my fate I guess you could say <laughs> with with doing this thing um how was it adjusting to life on the road and adjusting you you, you were carrying everything on your back by the way you don't have support for this it's all self-supported yeah so I decided to get self-supported a couple of reasons really Firstly, I I just I didn't I didn't have a clue what I was doing and I kind of felt like I didn't really want to drag other people into it. I was like, if I am just doing this self-supported and it all goes wrong or I don't want to do it or whatever it might be, I was like, then I can just quit and that'll be that. 
And I think also, I just did want a bit of an adventure. And I think having a support crew, yeah, I'm sure I'll go, I'll go on to kind of the whole experience, but having a support crew would have completely changed what ended up being some of the best parts of the whole experience. So yeah, I was carrying all my stuff on my back. You often see people do long distance runs with kind of pushing their stuff in a buggy or a stroller. But because of the kind of terrain I was on, that definitely would have been, wouldn't have been an option. So yeah, everything was on my backpack. And I, I think, to be honest, I found the first the first bit altogether quite anticlimactic. And I, I think and what I mean by that is that first day, like I said, it was on, yeah, just some kind of roads, not very exciting. I stayed in a Holiday Inn hotel with my parents. And then the next day we set out again. And, and it was all very, like, built up. I wasn't anywhere particularly remote. The scenery wasn't great. And because I was always planning to sort of build up the mileage as I went, on those first few days, although the first day had been a bit longer, I was often doing often doing really short distances. And so I, was, I just remember thinking, I can't believe I've like quit my job and upheaved my whole life to go for a seven mile run around Kent. I was like, this is mad. <laughs> and I think that definitely feels really different to now, especially if I've done like I've done some like shorter kind of multi-day run since and you're on the third it's kind of a bit of a baptism of fire and on the first day you're doing like 30 miles and you're dead by the end of it and you're really like jumping in at the deep end and it wasn't really like that so I just remember feeling I don't know just a bit like this is just a bit weird <laughs> like um and yeah it was just it was a bit of a strange feeling to be honest and it what it took quite a few months to get to those kind of more remote scenic areas that felt a bit more adventurous and to be doing bigger miles and just feeling a bit more like I knew what I was doing I guess so it was a strange it was just felt like a very gentle start which was a bit odd to be honest. When did you feel like you were kind of getting into rhythm with the experience or was there ever rhythm was it just hard the whole time? No it definitely felt I think it was so uh, yeah, I went clockwise. So for the first couple of months, I was going around sort of the east and southeast of um, coast of England. And those areas, because you're obviously close to London, and you, it just is really built up along that whole few hundred miles of coast, to be honest. So although there were some nice coast paths, um, especially when you get down towards like Brighton and you'll have a bit that's on the South Downs Way, it it was all very built up. Um and yeah, just like very like populated and stuff. And I still was doing quite short miles each day, I guess. And it took really until I started the Southwest Coast Path, which runs from Dorset around the kind of southwest of the UK up to Somerset. But that's when I think it really started to feel like an adventure because there are some stretches of the a lot of people did the Southwest Coast Path as kind of a complete challenge. It's 630 miles in its entirety. And it's like it's absolutely stunning, stunning. It's beautiful. It's really hard going. It's very hilly. There are um like lots of quite remote sections where I wouldn't see anyone for a while. Um and it I think that was when it started to feel like I was on an adventure, I guess. Um, and, I, and also because I'd got a bit fitter and a bit more used to it at that point, I'd started to do kind of like 20, 25 miles a day, a lot of days. And so I'd get to the end of the day and I'd be muddy and covered in scratches and bruises and exhausted. And I was like, this is a bit more what I was hoping for. And I guess you get a bit of adrenaline on those days. I think that's what the beginning was lacking, to be honest. There was no adrenaline to cut adrenaline to cut, keep me going um so yeah I think that was when it started to feel like a bit of an adventure 
Yeah, I've heard you mention some interesting like mental blocks that you were dealing with through the adventure of like your first night camping and dealing with cows and stuff like that. About the cows. What what were I know you've told those stories, but what what were some of the maybe more difficult aspects that you didn't plan for? Was it navigation? Was it vehicles or going through cities? Like tell us maybe something you didn't expect that was a challenge. Yeah, so I think uh, something that ended up being very different to how I expected was I I set off with a tent, a sleeping bag, a roll mat, and I thought I'd camp the whole way. And that was for a couple of reasons, really. Firstly, that I knew there was absolutely no way I could afford to do it if I'd stayed like in accommodation every night. And also, it just seemed like that's what you do on an adventure. But a lot of the people I'd been following along doing these kind of things were doing things in slightly more remote areas or places that are just a bit more geared up for camping, like like Anna running the Tiara Trail in New Zealand, a lot of which is through really remote areas or red blogs, people doing a lot of the big through hikes in the States. And, and they're obviously like, that's what you do. You camp on those kind of trips. And although, and I just didn't really think about how different it would be in those kind of built up areas in the middle of winter in the UK. And I think it, I think I just expected, and I also, I'd read a lot of stuff, especially when, yeah, you read kind of like Sean Conway's blogs and stuff like that, of him just like putting his tent up anywhere and, and just sleeping in like a lay-by, whatever it might be. And I think I just thought I'd take the first step of this adventure and become super brave and want to do that. And what I found was a bit of a mixture, I guess, of the areas I was going to maybe not being that conducive to doing that. And also, I guess, especially probably as a woman, I just didn't feel safe camping in those built up areas in a way that other people might have done. Um, and also the weather, like it just being wet and cold and dark at 4pm, like when you're wild camping, you're obviously meant to kind of arrive late, leave early. And when it's dark at four o'clock, it's like, well, I'm not really sure what I'm meant to do. I can't put my tent up now. Um, so I ended up, but and it was kind of a lucky coincidence, really, that through the, the blog I'd been writing and then lots of friends of friends and over the winter when they were really quiet, quite a few B&Bs and hostels helped me out. I ended up staying with people in this like amazing network of just like kindness, to be honest, for the first, for the whole of the first half. And I didn't, and I did pay for a few nights accommodation here and there, obviously, but mostly people were like really generously welcoming me into their homes to stay with them. Um, and so I didn't actually put my tent up at all for yeah, the first half of it. And I think that was completely different to what I'd expected. But also, if it hadn't been for that, I don't think there's any way at all I would have seen it through. I think I would have just got a couple of weeks in and, and just been like, this is not going to work. And to be honest, I still kind of stand by that. While now I've done a lot more camping and wild camping, and I'd really happily go to like a mountainous area or a remote trail and camp there on my own. I, I still don't think I would want to do those first stretches, especially in the winter and camp on my own. I, yeah, I still don't think I'd enjoy that at all. So it ended up being completely different to how I thought it would be, um, basically, in those respects. And I think that was, I think just the naivety of not having done that kind of thing. I didn't really recognise how different where I was going and what I was doing would perhaps be to, yeah, like doing these more remote trails. So that was definitely completely different. Um and I think I just realised all the things I didn't know. Like, I, I couldn't really navigate. I realised I was terrified of animals. So pretty much everything was different to how I expected, to be honest. 
That's that's adventure for you. Wow. So, so you mentioned safety. What was the level of awareness as far as for, for being alone for your safety? Was that a big concern? I don't know. You know, I know culture can differ in the UK versus the US, but it's it's often a big concern here for especially for women who are doing something alone here in the States. How big of a problem was that for you as far as facing that? Yeah, I think it wasn't necessarily a problem. It was definitely something I thought about a lot and probably affected some of my decisions. Like I said, I I still, to this day, I I wouldn't want to camp in a lot of the areas that I didn't want to camp in then. And I don't think that was just me being scared then. That's, That's still how I feel. I find it really useful to be quite like logical about the dangers in certain places. So I find if I'm in more remote areas on your own it can feel a bit eerie sometimes you know oh there's no there's nobody around but kind of I actually feel a lot safer in those places than I do kind of walking back to my flat in the city on my own late at night where there are people around and and I yes I think and just kind of and sadly obviously the statistics of kind of attacks and stuff do back that up so I I try and not feel scared just because something's a bit creepy and think more like, well, realistically, I'm literally on a trail. There's nobody else around. I'm sure I'll be fine. Rather than, yeah, I think, and I feel a lot safer in those environments than I do in the city, to be honest. Um, and there were definitely things I did. So when I was, um, a lot, I know a lot of people doing big adventures have really cool, like tracking maps and G- people GPS trackers so people can see where they are. I didn't like the idea of people knowing exactly where I was at any moment. So I didn't have one of those. I was posting on social media a lot and I but I also always tried to kind of delay my posting by a day or two so that I was never saying exactly where I was at any moment um and I had a bit of a we're lucky in the UK that mostly obviously signal phone signal and stuff can kind of go in and out but it mostly I had signal every day and everywhere I was going so I'd have a bit of a check-in time with my parents every night so about six o'clock I'd just let them know that I was okay and they would have got worried if they hadn't heard from me um and I did also have a spot tracker uh with me which you can send like a GPS alert um just in case anything does go wrong and they're obviously really useful in areas where you don't have any cell service um so yeah I guess I did a few things and just but my people always ask my dad how he felt and if he was really worried about me and he always says the same that he if I tell him I'm going walking in the mountains on my own for the day he feels so much more chilled than if I call him and I'm walking home from the pub at 11 p.m and that's when he said he's really worried and I think I definitely feel the same about that but I guess it is yeah it definitely is something you have to think about annoyingly yeah I mean I'm I'm a big, tall man, and I'm scared to death sometimes of laying down in the middle of the woods. And and uh, but you, when you think through the logic and think through, make sure you're you're setting yourself up for success. There's there's very very little to be worried about, and you find a lot of it is just in your head. Yeah, and I think I do also think, and it in no way kind of negates the dangers that yeah, especially with and I think in the past year or so, there's definitely been a lot of stuff in the news here in the UK with a lot of violence towards women and attacks and stuff. But I think in some ways, because I like I said, I, I stayed with all of these complete strangers and it was they welcomed me into their homes and I'd read kids' bedtime stories. And and some of those families did say to me that they probably wouldn't have invited like a big adventurous man in in the way that they felt very comfortable having me as a kind of young, unthreatening woman. So I guess maybe there were pluses and minuses. Um, and it did feel like a privilege that people trusted me in their homes, I think. Yeah, 
Absolutely. We, we host adventures in our home and <clears throat> we have small children and <laughs> we get a feel. We, all, we often just, just invite them to camp in the yard and, uh, yeah. if, and we have them for dinner. And if there were, we get a good feeling, gut feeling over that. And if it looks like the weather's bad, uh, it, we invite them inside. So, but I always, I always like to just get to know them a little bit. I think that gut feeling is really helpful. And I definitely just, yeah, I, I realize I sometimes forget to touch upon this. I, like I said, I stayed with a lot of strangers and I didn't just blanket accept invitations. I, I preferred just a lot of the people I stayed with were in some way connected to somebody else. So a lot of the time I'd stay with someone and then they'd invite me to stay with their friend or be a friend of a friend of a friend or whatever. So it was not that often like a total stranger. And a lot of people messaged me on Facebook, which was really useful because to be honest, I just have a bit of a stalk and often they were just clearly like families with young kids and I always felt quite safe staying with those people or people who associate with local running groups and stuff and to be honest when like a sort of lone single man invited me to stay I mostly did kind of politely decline those offers and I'm sure I'm absolutely sure that 99.9% of them were um, offering with the best of intentions and not meaning any harm but it's, it's not worth putting yourself in a situation where you feel really uncomfortable um so yeah, just you do have to be a bit careful, I guess. Absolutely. So so I know <laughs> I know we're we're almost at an hour here and we haven't talked much about the adventure, but I, I do want to know because I want I want folks to go read the book and check out the book Coasting. And we'll plug all that and talk about, you know, where to find it and whatnot in the intro that I record after after this. But what what is what is your second favorite story to tell about the adventure? Because I want to save your first favorite adventure for the book itself, but what is one of your maybe lesser known or second favorite stories that 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 are that you think back fondly of about this experience. Oh, second favorite story. <laughs> I'm trying to think my first favorite. Yeah, back. you might not even have a first favorite. So, I think one of my one of my favorites, which yeah, probably not my first favorite, but one of my favorite stories, which it is in the book as well, is I was um in Bude. Well, I was running to Bude, which is kind of in the depths of Cornwall. Uh, right down south of the UK and to be honest I had a terrible day the weather was awful I, it was just a really rubbish day and I got to and I, at one point I'd thought about I, there was one bus a day that went through this village and could take me to Bude where I was staying at the end of the day and I remember sitting there thinking oh shall I just get the bus and come back tomorrow but then that really to kind of retrace my steps but then I realized that did ruin my plans quite a lot so I was like right I'm just gonna have to get on with it and I got to a little village kind of a couple of miles before Bude and it was dark at this point. I didn't want to go on the coast path in the dark and I just thought, oh, I'm just, I'm just done. And I went into this shop, which was the wet fish shop. I've never been to a wet fish shop before. I'm assuming it's just because it sells raw fish. Um, and I went in and I asked if there was a bus into Bude from there. And the guy behind the counter said, oh, I think he said, oh, you've just missed the bus or being like a, a bit of a wait, but I'm, I'm just finishing up and I can give you a lift if you want. Um, so, and, and going back to what we're saying, like I just got a good, good vibe from the wet fish man. So he finished closing up the shop. He, and he dropped me into Bude. And I remember him asking what I've been doing. And I, I found that sometimes I just couldn't be bothered to tell people about the whole trip because people were always amazing and had loads of questions and were really like excited. And I sometimes was just like, oh, I just can't be bothered to talk about this Absolutely. right now. Absolutely. I, so I, I know think exactly I just, that what you're talking about. You know, and you're like, well, you're being so nice and I just can't be bothered to talk about it. So I think I just said I'd been somewhere I'd been that day or something. Um, and then 
we, yeah, he dropped, and he dropped me where, I just expected him to drop me in the centre of view. But he was like, no, I can take you where you're going. And a couple called Annie and Graham had, from who ran with their local running club in Bude and offered me to stay that night. So he dropped me right to their door, which was just, and I was just so grateful not to be out on that coast path in the rain anymore. And I got to Annie and Graham's house and um, Graham took one look at me and was like, you're very muddy. And I went to the garden and I basically got hosed down in the garden before I was allowed in the house, which when I went inside, it was such a lovely clean house. I was like, right, fair enough. And then they said, oh, we're just going to get in a hot tub. Do you want a gin and tonic? And I was like, absolutely, I want to get into a hot tub with a gin and tonic right now. <laughs> so literally 30 minutes after I've been plastered in mud, miserable, after this horrible, wet, windy day of like, I've been out for about 10 hours on this coast path. I was in the hot tub with this lovely couple having a gin and tonic. Then we had a spaghetti bolognese. And then I think they were actually going out to meet some friends at the pub. So they just left me to watch the TV all night, which was lovely as well. And I was like, just look at the quickness of how it turned around. And I was like, these three strangers have just made me so happy. <laughs> and I just think, yeah, it was just a nice moment of how quickly things can turn around thanks to the help from some complete strangers who really didn't have to help me. Wow. So yeah, thanks to the wet fish man. I did get to say thank you to Annie and Graham, but I never fully thanked the wet fish man. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's though to me it's those kinds of experience that make the adventure so memorable and so impactful is, you know, you know, you're going to run the, the, the coast, but you don't know you're going to run into a Wesh Fit man and have a drink, uh, have a gin and tonic in a hot tub. You don't yeah. know that's going to happen beforehand. There's no way to no. know. And I think it's those, like, I think sometimes those stories sound a bit like anticlimactic, but it's those smaller moments that really make it up. And also I think that's what I love about running and adventure and hiking and stuff in general, that you have a really like rubbish wet day and then this just something quite simple just seems like the best thing in the whole world and I think when you say it aloud it doesn't sound that exciting but when you've been out all day in the wet you're like this is fantastic like someone just has to give you a cup of tea and some dry socks and it's the best moment in the world oh, I think that's yeah. what I like about it <laughs> It, they, I mean, people don't, I, it's, it's a lesson in the small things. I mean, there, there have been cups of coffee on trips that have brought me to tears because yeah, it's the most <laughs> meaningful thing. It's like perfect for that moment. Yeah. And you're, you're so exhausted or cold or tired and the, it, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Or clean water, you know, it's just, you don't take anything for granted or at least a lot less. So, um, as, as we're wrapping up, I do want to know, uh, you, you know, you finished this adventure, you've, you've written this book. Can you tell us about maybe post-adventure life, not post, post this adventure life, because I know you've done other things. What was it like to adjust back to, quote, normal life or a different kind of normal for you after 10 months? And was that a hard transition? Yeah, I think, yeah, because I, I finished six years ago now, which has gone very fast um and I think it's definitely been a bit of a, a learning curve I guess and to be honest something I'm still figuring out because I think when I first did finish I just didn't really know I, I'd like done this big thing which had completely taken over my life for a year or a year and a half and I was like I just didn't really know what uh, what to talk about then or who I was or it, and it was difficult to just go back because you do these big things and you realise that everyone's excited for you and like my family and friends were came to the finish line, but really their lives had just gone on without me and nothing had changed. And and it took me a while to figure out what 
to do with that. And I remember well, when I finished, I had absolutely no money left. So I had to get another job immediately. So I moved straight back to London, started doing a very similar job to the one that had been making me completely miserable before, which was obviously a terrible idea. But I just didn't really know what else to do. Because I thought, well, I've got no money. I'll have to work again. And I kind of spent a year or so just not really doing anything adventure particularly. And, and in a way, it was quite nice. Like I was living with one of my best friends before and we spent a lot of time just going to the pub going to work doing a lot of normal things and then it's slowly I started to get back into running again and I got a new job and I work in a walking charity um encouraged kind of like everyday walking for health and it was only then really that like moving and being outdoors started to become a really big part of my everyday life and I still think that it's that smaller kind of getting outside and moving and walking to work or cycling somewhere or going for a run at lunchtime or whatever it might be is I think like much more important to me than going on the big adventures and they're the things that make kind of keep me ticking over much better um so yeah I was still living in London for a while and then I moved to Bristol to get away from being quite such a big city and then the pandemic hit and it was kind of a couple of years of both in some ways I was doing a lot because all we could do here in the UK was like suddenly like pubs, restaurants, cinemas, bars, whatever were closed. And all you could do was go running and walking and cycling. So I actually got really into adventure again in that way. Um, and like I said earlier, I've just, uh, yeah, kind of decided to, because I yeah, work completely remotely now. So I've decided to give up my flat for a bit and have a go at living a bit more nomadically and having and kind of incorporating some more adventures into my life again because it's definitely been a bit of a transition of working out what to do because I think I realized quite quickly I didn't want to go on another 10-month adventure so I kind of went the flip way and it's working out where in the middle of that spectrum I'd like to be I think so yeah still working it out but it was definitely a big transition probably one of my last questions is the process of writing a book you know for a lot of adventurers the adventure is easy compared to that for you how was it getting all this to paper? And, and to be uh, uh, honest, I have not read the book, uh, but I've heard a lot of people say how how honest it is and how different it is than a lot of adventure memoirs. How was the process for you? Was it difficult? Did it come easy? Tell us about that. Well, yeah, so it took me about five years from finishing the adventure to put putting pen to paper. So I think that's probably why I realised that a career of going on a big adventure, writing a book, rinse and repeat wasn't for me because it took me too long to do it. Um, <laughs> I think Vivi, yeah, a very long time scale, I wouldn't be making any money. Um, and I, I think to be honest, that was because there was a lot of stuff around my decision to go on the adventure. Like, I, yeah, I'd mentioned I'd been dating someone and to be honest, that was quite a unhealthy, not great situation. And that played a big part in my mindset at the beginning. And and just lots of things that I want. I didn't want to write the book unless I was ready to be really honest about it. But right after I finished, it was still so close to all those experiences that I I just didn't really have any like perspective on them to write about them. Or I like now it almost feels like it was a different person. So I don't feel any kind of like embarrassment about being really honest about things. Whereas I think when we were a bit closer to them, it's difficult not to kind of detach from them. So yeah, it took me a while and. I think actually writing a book's got a lot of similarities with a big adventure. Like you spend a lot of time in your head on your own. You realize how annoying you are, um, and yeah, quite an intense experience. But it was it was actually really nice to go back and because I, I went through all of my old videos and blogs that I'd made, 
And remember all those like small, amazing moments like Annie and Graham and the wet fish man that you kind of forget about a bit. And then I was like, oh God, all these amazing things happen. And I think to be honest, that also did light a bit of a like, oh, I do want a bit more adventure in my life again. It's not not in terms of going on a 10 month run, I don't think. But yeah, I guess I was like, I think I've become quite settled back into my comfort zone. Even though I go and like give talks and stuff and tell people to go and do these adventurous things. I was like, maybe I'm a hypocrite really, aren't I? So yeah, it was, it was actually like a really amazing experience. And it's been, yeah, like I said, I think I said earlier, I, I truly believe if I can run around the country, then anyone can. And I kind of wanted to get that across because I think sometimes when you say, oh, I didn't know what I was doing. I was really inexperienced. It just sounds like you're being a bit humble. And I kind of wanted to get across that I really did not know what I was doing. Story of my life. No (laughs) idea. That doesn't, that doesn't stop you. So, um, last question and and I'll let you go. Uh, actually last two, uh, tell us one of the biggest lessons you've learned from this experience, maybe it's what you just said about being prepared and not really know everyone's winging it is what I'm realizing in life. Um, some people just play it off better than others, but tell us what's one of the biggest lessons you've learned since then and thinking back on the experience and also, um, what's next for you? Um, I think, yeah, I think I'm going to go, I'll go to two lessons if that's all right be sneaky. The first one, definitely that you really don't have, I think it's easy to look at people who've done something big like that and just think oh they must be like really good at running or whatever it is and I think you don't have you really do not have to be the best most athletic person you can go so slowly and if you just keep going for quite a few hours a day you'll get a really long way and yeah you don't have to be the most athletic amazing person out there to do something big you do just have to do it um, and I think also a big part of it for me was when people were started kind of offering me places to stay and to help me with various things, that just felt really unnatural. And I wanted to sort of like say no. And then I was like, people, people only offer to help you if they really want to help. And I think I've got a bit better at kind of accepting that. And then like, if I offer someone to stay with me or do something, it's only because I actually want them to come. I'm not just, you know, doing it to be nice. <laughs> and I was, yeah, so I think getting a bit better at accepting help from others um yeah it was definitely a big thing for me in terms of what's next I think like I said I'm planning I've got a lot of talks around the UK this summer um, and I'm actually writing my next book which is a guidebook so um planning and yeah very lucky that Oxenham works very flexible so planning to um travel around a bit in the van spend as much time outside doing adventures as possible while working as well um and then I've got a five-day ultra race in Mexico in November so I've actually been a bit injured recently not running much so trying to build up the running again in time for that so that's kind of what the rest of the year looks like really fantastic awesome well is there any particular place you you want people to get the book I know it's on Amazon but is is there a website your personal website or or where where do you prefer yeah, so you can get it on kind of, yeah, all the normal bookshops, Amazon, etc. On my website, which is elisedowning.com, um, I c- can do signed copies. So if you're interested in one of those, then head there and do ship worldwide, although shipping is a bit expensive overseas. Sorry about that. Um, so yeah, that's probably the best places to buy the book, but very grateful to anyone who buys it from anywhere, to be honest. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Elise, thank you so much for for talking us talking to us on Adventure Sports Podcast about 
a, tr- a true adventure, like a real hard, uh, hardcore in a lot of ways, but just a, a, what I consider a real adventure. This is fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was great to chat. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>